Being Black in America comes with its challenges. However, we understand that enlightenment through education is the oppressor's worst fear. By bridging the gap between academia and the people, our purpose is to equip you with knowledge that breaks down barriers during your journey towards truth and freedom. Welcome to the Black and Highly Dangerous Podcast. Sup, Dev? How's it going? It's going good. Recovering from a wedding I attended and was in this weekend. So a little tired, but it was an awesome celebration of Black love uh, with my old, my former roommate when I lived in Atlanta. So that was oh, pretty nice. exciting. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Wedding's always fun. It's always fun. Mm-hmm. What you been mm-hmm. up to? Uh, not much, you know, just counting down the days till the eight days I have until classes start. So I'm kind of just re- chilling and relaxing <laughs> and not trying to think about going back to work too much, but I know it's approaching. So it's just one of those kind of things you just like, oh, here we go. Getting mentally ready. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. I have eight days until my research starts. And so I'm, you know, a little bit nervous, getting a little mm-hmm. prepared too. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, getting data is a little fun. You know, that's fun. I'm sure you'll have a good time doing that, seeing the trends and stuff when you get started. I mean, well, probably after a little while. But yeah. Collecting data could be, especially qualitative work. So mm-hmm. a little more fun than crunching numbers to me, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we got some uh, old lore news. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. All right, let's get into it. Hello, and welcome to BHD News, where we give you the most current and eye-opening old lore news of the week. Join us as we present news that'll make you want to say. Okay, speaking of weddings, I ended up staying up late last night because I came across news. It wasn't in the major newspapers, but it it spread like wildfire on social media that this popular online um, social justice um, person also got married this weekend, but their wedding was ruined in a way because his girlfriend that he just broke up with right before the wedding posted on social media and exposed him. And they even started posting on the new wife's social media with like screenshots. Screenshots of wait, what? <laughs> of him confessing and apologizing for like playing the girlfriend. He doesn't know why he did it. So. Oh, man. And that was the day of the wedding? Yes, the day of the wedding. So he broke up with her just before the wedding. She looked him up on social media and then saw the, like, engagement photos and, you know, all of these things. I don't know how she didn't look him up before because I'm not going to say any names to protect the bride and the other woman. (laughs) Um, But it's crazy. He broke up with her just before the wedding. The wedding still happened, but I'm just... I, I, child, I'm just wondering how that went because they even started posting on the bride's social media page. Um, yes. 
to like make sure she knew. But at that point, it was too late. I don't know. That's a yeah, that's a messy situation. Oh man, that is not the way you want to start off a marriage. That's for sure. <laughs> oh man. More, more. I guess you know. Good luck to them. I, I don't know, but I thought it was crazy, and I was like, yeah. And it was black love too, so that made me kind of. Oh man, yeah. There still be some drama with black love sometimes. <laughs> That's sad though. Okay. Okay, so this this next story, I started following this Instagram account called Living While Black. Mm-hmm. And I just saw this video that just made my blood boil. It's brand new. So a white woman in a parking lot notices that a black driver has expired tags. Mm. She pulls behind the driver and refuses to move. And then she calls the police. Of course. Of course she did. And so, you know, what? I think what pissed me off is just the audacity to, like, you really, you blocked this woman. Like, she detained her. So I I hope that the black woman can, Mm -mm. you know, maybe potentially file charges on, like, illegal detainment. Like, you Mm -mm. cannot make a citizen's arrest. Oh, man. You know, this this is getting a bit much. And, you know, I saw... um, a posting not too long ago talking about, let me see, uh, New York State Senator Jesse Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is making moves to, I guess, make it racially motivated 911 calls be considered a hate crime. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. I saw that. I looked that up just as I saw it. It's like, mm, we need <laughs> that because it's kind of like, child, I know it, it just bothers me. Yeah, people are doing the most, man. They're doing the most. And it's putting people's lives, literally your lives in danger nowadays when, when it involves the police officers in these kind of situations because you just don't know how it can end. And, you, and it, you're calling the police on stuff so tiny that doesn't even matter. You know, why, why are you so concerned? Whether, you know, somebody has a expired tag, no permits to have a barbecue, like little stuff like that or to sell water. Little stuff like that that... That might get you a ticket. This is not going to get you major jail time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, come on. You're doing the most. <sighs> okay. Well, hopefully something like that gets passed. I'll be interested to see the the details of such a law because I don't want it to be anything that can be. <laughs> then flip around. Yeah, exactly. So you have to be real careful. Um, but if it's done the right way, hopefully at least it'll cause people to stop calling the police so quickly on these little minor things. If they, if they feel like they can, there's consequences at least for their actions. Like, mm-hmm. hey, if I call and I'm wrong and I can actually be the one getting ticket or face potential jail time because of mm-hmm. wasting the city's resources. So, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. okay, so this last story. You know, we often talk about generational wealth and passing, you know, businesses and money on to our children to ensure that they have a better future. But this next story is not what we're talking about. Don't do this, y'all. Mm-hmm. So a father, 51, and his 17-year-old daughter were arrested for working together to deal drugs at her high school. Oh, man. <laughs> no. <laughs> So, you know, after a raid, they found two pounds of marijuana, mm. MDMA, which is ecstasy, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. And $22,000 in cash. So they were making bank. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, man. One, you know, oh. that is not the kind of activities father and daughter should be doing together. 
selling drugs. This was um, in Cummings, Georgia. It was at a white high school. Oh my God, that's crazy. And then when I hear stories like this, like when you find $22,000 in cash, I'm like, when is enough enough? Right? How much cash do you need? I feel like sometimes people be doing it too long or too much and then they wind up getting caught, you know? Yeah, yeah. Quick, like you know, they could use that twenty thousand dollars to start a a food truck. Yeah, do <laughs> exactly. Like have a plan, but it's like goodness <laughs> gracious. I mean, yeah, that that's whatever. They got caught. Shouldn't be doing it, and it, clearly not the the smartest. But hey, that that's weird. And he was trying to be Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, that don't work in real life. No, it don't work in real life. So chill out with that one. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's all the news for today. It's been some, you know, interesting random stories, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. You know. yeah. Well, uh, today's topic we have um, Dr. Bo Gators coming to join us. Um, I know we mentioned and we talked about it briefly before in one of our past episodes, but we'll spend a whole episode talking about um, just really Afro Latin culture. Uh, Bo is a historian. Um, he's a professor of history, but this is his area of expertise looking at this. So we're asking him questions about his research. Um, he spent a couple years in Mexico looking in the archives and doing this kind of archival research and da- gathering data about the history of pretty much black folk in Latin American countries. Um, and so it was a pretty interesting conversation. Uh, he speaks a couple languages, too. We have fun with that later in the interview. So I know you guys will enjoy that and hopefully listen to what he said in the other language and take heed to what he says, but I'll save that for the interview. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited because, you know, when we talk about black people, you know, because of our history, I think even people outside of the United States, when you hear black people, your mind go to like United States, black people, Mm -hmm. um, what they call American, but you know, we aren't even the only American black people. There are more Americas Mm -hmm. Mm y'all other than North America. So, you know, I think this is an important topic as we think about what does it mean to be black and how the black experience is so varied, um, Mm -hmm. across the, across the world. And, and similar too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like, you're right. A lot of people just think, oh, black people in America, black people in Africa, maybe the Caribbean, and that's it. Um, but yeah. We're all over the world in every country and um, have history in every country, too. So it's, it's good to open our eyes and, and be more knowledgeable about that. For sure. Yeah. But all right, without further ado, let's let's talk to uh, Dr. Gators and then we'll catch up with y'all afterwards. With the rise of Afro-Latina stars such as Cardi B and Amara La Negra, more attention has been given to the culture and experiences of black people outside of the United States and Africa. Today, we add to the larger conversation by focusing on Afro-Latino history and culture. We interview Dr. Bo Gators, an assistant professor of history at Winston-Salem State University in the Department of History, Politics, and Social Justice. We discuss the differences between race and ethnicity, his research on Afro-Latin American history, colorism in Latin America, and how to build bridges across culture in the Black community. Welcome, Dr. Gators. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Welcome. (laughs) So the way we like to generally start off our interviews is just for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell tell them a little bit about yourself and kind of why you're passionate about your research. But pretty much how did you even your journey to getting to where you're at today and studying what you're studying? 
Got it. Got it. Well, that's an interesting story and I'll, I'll keep it short. I won't do the historians, you know, long story, but, um, honestly, so I got interested in the topic when I was in undergrad. So I'm from the South side of Chicago and in high school, we didn't really talk about much of the African diaspora at all. Really. We talked about, you know, black populations in the U S and different urban and rural spaces, but not so much, um, in other locations. So when I went to undergrad, I happened to have this advisor and he taught a course that was called Blacks in Latin American History and Society. And I was forced to take the course. It wasn't a choice. Um, But when I took the course, I was fascinated with just learning about the history of African descendants. But the thing that stood out to me wasn't so much the history. There was a day that he showed images of people from Brazil. His research was um, on Afro-Brazilian politics. And there was this image that he showed, and I kid you not, the the woman looked exactly like my sister. And I was so fascinated by the image, I I asked him more questions about the population and um, how they got there. And he explained to me, as well as to the rest of the class, about the, the movement and the large populations of African descendants who were forcibly taken to other places in the Americas beside the, besides the United States. And from there, this passion arose in terms of finding more about the history because I, I learned that the vast majority of African descendants who were forced into slavery were brought to Latin American countries or Latin American regions at that time. So, so yeah, so for me, it was, it was fascinating to see even uh, they have current day, they have sort of mappings that, detail the percentages of individuals brought to the U.S. versus other spaces in Latin America and the vast majority, and by vast majority, I mean roughly 90 to 95 percent were taken to the Caribbean and to Latin America, and only 5 percent were taken to the United States. So learning about that history of that movement, I, I wanted to know more, not just about the presence, but what types of impacts that those different populations have in those areas. And so in undergrad, my research specifically focused on political parties uh, or black political parties in Latin America. So my undergraduate thesis was on two parties, one, a black political party in Cuba known as the Independent Party of Color that was established in 1908 and lasted until 1912. And I'll give you more detail about that later. And then another party in Brazil, which was called the Black Brazilian Front, which was established in the 1930s. So knowing that, so it it actually made me reflect on Black political activism in the U.S. and how it had already started to emerge in terms of developing specific parties in other spaces that that have large populations of African descendants. So my initial research, my initial passion was more so focused on the political side, but now my research looks at also the economic impact and the cultural impact of African descendants. And what I'm currently working on is the specific role of African descendants in Mexico, because there's a lot of research on Brazil and Cuba and the Dominican Republic, Colombia, places of that nature, but there's not as much done on Mexico. So that's that's the current project that I'm working on now is um, looking at the role of African descendants in the primary port of importation known as Veracruz in Mexico. So that's how I got into the topic. That's what sort of brought my passion. And that's where I am now in terms of the research that I'm doing. 
Um, that was really uh, interesting to see how you, you know, made it to this journey and now you're a professor, uh, which is really awesome. So in, in thinking about your research, and especially when we focus on like uh, Afro-Latino populations or Latinx populations, as some people say now, I've noticed that some people confuse race and ethnicity. And I've seen a lot of comments, you know, that might suggest that an Afro-Latino person is not black you know, they're Latino or that they're not white, they're Latino. Um, So there's a little confusion around that. So can you define Afro-Latino for our listeners and maybe even give insight into the differences between race and ethnicity and why it is possible for someone to be both Black and Latinx? Oh, of course, of course. And I think you're you're spot on with that. There's several occasions where people will, where I've heard people say, well, that person's from a specific com- country, right? That person's from Colombia, so they can't be black. Um, or that person is um, Brazilian, so that take that that trumps race. And there's this constant, I think, conflict and, and misunderstanding between uh, race and ethnicity that continues to take place, and it becomes frustrating. Uh, it's frustrating for me as a researcher, but I think it's even more frustrating for people who are um, both from a specific region and of African descent. So in terms of, um, and you just made me think of this book, but I don't, that was my opening into race and ethnicity uh, that focused specifically on Latin America, but then it's called um, race and ethnicity in Latin America by this author, Peter Wade. But it, it details the the sort of tension that people have when they're thinking about race and ethnicity. And Daphne, can you rephrase the, or ask the question again? I want to make sure that I'm answering. Um, how do you define uh, Afro-Latino or Afro-Latino? And um, just, you know, kind of explaining the difference between, you know, race, ethnic, ethnicity, and nationality. Gotcha. Okay, so... Um, in terms of race, we're really looking at, oftentimes we're looking at uh, phenotypic features, but also um, some of the, the influences coming from a certain space. So when we're talking about um, Afro-Latinos, we're talking about individuals who have African descent in their heritage. So they, they have this um, presence or they, they have African descendants in their lineage. And... They're also at the same time, in terms of their ethnicity, we're looking at the idea of um, the role of Hispanic culture, uh, the role of, uh, yeah, I would say, yeah, the role of Hispanic culture um, in their makeup and then nationality, which complicates things even more is a lot of these places were Spanish colonies or French colonies or Portuguese colonies, and now they're their own nation. So you have this, this overlap of nation race and ethnicity that particularly stands out when we're talking about um, Afro-Latinos. So if we're looking at uh, or we're talking about an Afro-Brazilian or an Afro-Colombian, these individuals have African descent in terms of racially, their their identification would be black or mulatto, depending on the location. But they can also have multiple ethnic, um, I guess, connections or affiliations which would be sort of the Hispanic, the African, um, and oftentimes uh, also the indigenous populations. And then they have this tie to nation um, that is that is 
couched in the country that they're from or the country that they live in. So when so let's talk about your research for a little bit, man. Um, you know, I know you researched a lot. You focus right now on Mexico in particular and the Afro Afro Latin American history a part of that. So tell us like what you're finding and how you conduct that research. And I know you, if I'm correct, you spent some time out there, right? Um, in Mexico to learn some things and see some things. So share for our listeners that experience and, and some of the things you've been finding in that journey. Yeah. So, so part of the, uh, the research in Mexico was, it was twofold. Um, one, I wanted to look into the history, but I was also curious about the current day present. So I wanted to sort of look at how history plays out in, in current day manifestation. So I went to Mexico, actually, I, I lived in Mexico for two and a half years conducting the research that I was doing. Wow. So um, I, I went I went to Veracruz because that was, as I mentioned earlier, that was the primary port of importation of enslaved Africans. So I went there with this idea that I was going to see this vast population of African descendants. Um, but I also had this idea that it was going to be this sort of segregated space, like black people would be in one space and then indigenous would be in another. And while I was there, um, I had this opportunity. While I was there, I went to the port where all of, where a lot of the commercial transactions take place. And I witnessed so many people interacting with each other. So it wasn't this segregation that I immediately thought. And that was my first trip there. So it wasn't the segregation that I immediately thought. So what my, my research turned into was, has this been the case historically, or is this something, this, this movement amongst each other, has this been something that has taken place currently? So while I was living in Mexico, I was working sort of the day-to-day working with individuals, but I did a lot of um, archival research and so in the archives, you know, that's where they collect as many historic documents as they can hold um, in those spaces. And I, I often tell my students that the archive is the most boring, but most exciting place that you will ever <laughs> be in because you spend time sort of, at least for me, I spend so much time leafing through and reading through documents, hoping to, to find something related to an African descendant or to policy that may have been created. And then when I find something, it becomes exciting. And it's just this rush that you get to continuously look for more documents. So what I was, what I've done in Mexico is I specifically worked in looking at census records because the census records for the colonial period in Mexico were very detailed. So not only did they list the name, race, and ethnicity of individuals, but you could find where a person lived, um, what occupation they had. So um, I, I've been piecing together occupational profiles as well. So what jobs? So the vast majority of dock workers were African descendants, but that means that they had access to information. What type of information were they getting when people were coming into this space from all over the Caribbean, but also all over the world going into Veracruz? So my research now is really focused on um, uh, using that archival information to create a profile of, of this earlier, this development of national identity. So I'm transitioning into the independence period. And um, Daphne, your question earlier about race and ethnicity is, is great when I think about my research, because what happened in Mexico is they 
wanted to get rid of all of the racial categories in the early independence period. They wanted to get rid of all of the racial categories in an effort to create this um, unified Mexican identity. Everyone is a national citizen. But what that does for it makes it difficult for the historian or for someone doing research, because if I'm looking at a certain set of documents, for example, the census records, they just they didn't even take the category of race out of the census. They just started to place Mexican or citizen in that category for mm. every person. So there's a certain year where you where you lose the the presence or the the immediately visible presence. So what I've had to do now is do um, what's called nominal record linkages. So connecting names from the past and following them into, so connecting names from the 1790s, early 1800s, and following them into 1830, 1840, 1850. Um, and, and seeing how these people continue to operate, although the race is not listed, you know, sort of reading against the grain of what's in the archive. So although they're not listing the, the race in the archival documents, that doesn't mean that race still didn't exist on the ground. So I've had to couple different uh, types of documents together. So the census records combined with church records. So the nation stopped categorizing uh, race, but the church continued to list okay. people's race. And then, and, and at that time, I'm also looking at uh, what was being said in newspapers because they're dealing with issues of race, slavery, um, not just for Mexico, but with the U.S. as well. Um, and one of the key things that I'm looking at is this idea of freedom for Mexico. So they abolished slavery in 1829, but in the U.S., slavery still exists. So I'm also looking at what does that mean? What did that mean for African descendants who are in the lower South? So in New Orleans and lower Alabama and Texas, which was Mexico up until the 1830s. So also looking at how African descendants in the U.S. operated with these notions of race and nationality. If they couldn't escape to the North, oftentimes they would go to the South. And by South, I mean to Mexico. So that's the, the other mm, project that I'm working on. Yeah, that's really interesting. And you, you mentioned how uh, archival research, you know, it's both, you know, is something that you enjoy doing, but it's also something that like, uh, you know, is probably a very tedious process. But is I find it so interesting when, you know, I end up reading like historical narratives where people have really gotten into those archives and like really like just dug in and like uncovered a lot of things. So that's that's really interesting research. And it also made me think about how over like the last century, or so how the U.S. has changed census categories and, you know, not erasing race, but, you know, a long time ago, there were things like octoroon and quadroon and things like that and how, like, it's changed um, and how that can affect a historian's job. Um, but in, in thinking about your research, because it, to me, this sounds really important. It sounds like... Um, building bridges across cultures to understand like a deeper history about, you know, the, the black race. But I was just wondering if you in your own words can just help us understand uh, why it is so important that we, you know, build these connections or that we understand the connections of Africans to other regions outside of the United States. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So I think it's a, it's a couple of things. The first is 
when we think about the history of of African descendants and um, and the ways that what I'm what I'm coming to see or what I came to see that made me more fascinated with learning about the African diaspora is the ways in which African descendants have been sort of relegated to the margins in, in so many spaces. So it's oftentimes, I think people will look at it as a U.S. phenomenon of, of Black people being treated a certain way. And you see that it's, it's, a larger, it's a larger system at play, even when we talk about the interactions between the police and communities of African descent. If we're talking about the U.S., you see a similar, if not yeah, you see a similar situation in Brazil and the ways in which the police interact with this, oftentimes this extreme violence towards Black populations in often in urban spaces. So one of the things for me that makes it so important is seeing these connections and thinking about ways that groups and communities who may be in different countries can navigate these issues together, can sort of collaborate across geographic regions. And, and so that's one of the one of the major things that that I think is is critical. So although I'm fascinated with history, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's very useful for current day circumstances. So understanding and uh, using these issues in order to build up one another and to figure out how do we get out of these situations that are prevalent in, in certain spaces. Um, and the other thing for me is is to think about the position that Black people are in in other spaces. So in the U.S., we, we talk about what's going on here. But what's fascinating to me, um, as far as my research with Mexico, is what's happening is that they are finally... So they took Black out of the census category. So they called everyone Mexican. And then down the road, they reestablished ethnic identities and racial identities but they didn't put black in, into the census. And it took a lot of historic research, but also uh, present day activism for black communities in Mexico to push the government to add black back into the census. So they had their interim census in 2015 and they finally placed it in there. And I think it's roughly 1.3 million people were identified as black, but now they're gonna put it in the official census in two years, um, which will not only be useful, but, you know, census records are used oftentimes to allocate resources. So when we're thinking about, you know, the African diaspora and the sort of connections across the board, I, I want, for me, I want people to think, how are their connections across space, but also how can we, how can specific national groups gain more resources or gain more recognition um, and gain an understanding of what they've done for the nation? in terms of um, their historic presence and their historic contributions. Mm. Yeah, so that's, that's bringing me to, you know, kind of one of the next question, right? Um, and just even briefly from my own experience interacting with people from, you know, Afro-Latin countries, even even my students and others, you know, or when I'm doing my group in Newark, sometimes I'll just use, you know, the word black generally, and then sometimes I'll get a response from somebody from who's from like the Dominican or something like that, and they'll be like, Dominican Republic, I'm like, oh no, I'm not black. I'm Dominican, right? Mm. Um, uh, and and just conversations that, I, and even even in my own kind of life, realizing at certain points, right, uh, meeting people who were 
in essence, black and from these Latino countries. Um, and I never knew that there were black people that, you know, had the same skin tone as me or even darker in these countries. Uh, and then having conversations, some of them were like, hey, there are this privilege and stuff still attached to and colorism still attached to what we experience in the U.S. and our countries, too. Um, even to the point where they said, if you look at who, like, as far as being at a school like Purdue and many of the people who from Latin countries who were making it over to go to school at Purdue were fairer skin and lighter skin. And that was traditionally what I was used to seeing. And then when I would see some that were darker skin, it was alarming. Like, oh, I, didn't, I never knew this. I didn't know that. Right. right. Um, and so and not too long ago, and, I, and I'm sure you've you were paying close attention to this, too, the conversation that happened with Amara La Negra with The Breakfast Club, where she was trying to, I guess, enlighten Charlemagne and Envy about colorism and how it happens, not just in America, but in Latin American countries too. Um, so can you just shed some, some light on that uh, as far as like, is it true uh, in, from your research, from your experience, from you living in Mexico, do you see that kind of disconnect and difference? I know you mentioned it a little bit, like how the police um, still interact with people in Brazil and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, let's talk about that a little bit and these interactions and colorism. Yeah, no, no, I think that's that's excellent. And it, it actually thinking about colorism, um, it actually brings me back to something that Daphne brought up, which was, was the racial category. So um, Daphne mentioned like Octoroon and and there are certain categories that were used historically in the U.S., right, that mm-hmm. um, that also it wasn't just a, a term, but there is certain privileges attached to that. And or there were certain privileges attached to that but also certain um, it's, it's a historic context that is very important. And sometimes when looking at the, the terms in these um, archival documents, I have to realize, OK, so why is this term used? What does it mean? Why is it important? And, it, and thinking about the importance, it goes back to right what you were saying. Uh, so it goes right back to what you were saying, which is. Colorism exists and it has existed for a very long time. We talk about it in the U.S., but in Latin America, uh, you see it and it has been historically present, even in terms of um, we'll talk about universities, but even in terms of access to jobs. They used to have these um, ads in the paper. I guess, you know, we've moved away from the physical newspapers, but they used to have ads in the newspaper that would say both in, in the Dominican Republic, in Brazil, that would say there is a job opening. These are the credentials that you need. And at the very bottom, it would say, and also a person of good appearance. Mm-hmm. And typically those would be sort of hotel jobs where you would be a host. So you're in the front of, you know, you're the face of the establishment um, or you're the first person that, in, that interacts with guests. And by what they meant by good appearance was fair skinned individuals, a certain hair texture, um, oftentimes they're looking at eye color, but that was their way around not saying it, but saying it. So, you know, we have cer- there's certain access to certain jobs, but we also know that certain jobs pay a certain amount, which means that there's this economic attachment to the colorism that's at play. So you mentioned um, like the access to universities or access to studying abroad that that also plays a role or the access to going to university abroad that also plays a role. Um, it's just it's, it's fascinating because the colorism exists, but at the same time, you have people who will say things like, well, I'm this nationality and I'm not black. 
So the DR is a is a, a an intriguing case because they have a particular history in relation to Haiti. Mm-hmm. So given that history and that connection with Haiti, so Haiti's seen as the, you know, it's they're on one island. And the western portion of the island, Haiti, is seen as um, sort of the the darker portion. So you have this, there are times, at least in the history of, of the DR and Haitian relations, there have been racialized conflicts where it's violence towards um, darker skinned people who uh, who would have to prove. So if you were Dominican and you were darker skinned, there are these um, events that took place. One is called the um, Parsley Massacre. There's this this massacre that took place and a person had to be able to pronounce a certain word. They had to pronounce parsley in Spanish in order to stay alive. Um, But that's one of the extreme forms of colorism that took place historically. And now going directly to your question, now it's more it's more subtle in terms of um, access to resources, access to education. But there's this there is still this constant idea that darker skin is is not preferred or there was. And what I'm seeing currently is that you have um, darker skin or Afro-Latinx individuals, darker skin Afro-Latinx individuals using their platform in order to discuss these issues, but also to demonstrate the pride that they have um, in their complexion and their self. So I think that that's changing some of those dynamics, some of the, the ways that colorism has typically taken place, at least for people who are listening to them. Now, in terms of policy, that's yet to be seen. But um, I think in in the social day-to-day, people are more embracing darker-skinned Afro-Latinx individuals um, as a result of um, people talking about their their position and their their experiences, like Amara, Amara La Negra. You know, I think that that's one of the major things that, that's happening now um, in terms of colorism, but also understanding at the African diaspora is that there's more conversation um, and people are using technology and, and media in order to get that information out there. Yeah, I've I really found it um, exciting to have these conversations because I um, have a good friend. She's uh, Afro-Colombian and it's just interesting to how she talked about how people, you know, didn't necessarily perceive her as black, but also talked about like colorism issues uh, that, for instance, her you know niece has faced or different you know members of her family or community. So I, I just really appreciate that these conversations are happening and that, you know, people who uh, have not necessarily had a voice in in talking about like the diverse experiences and backgrounds of black people are finally getting these platforms and voices. So it's really awesome. Yeah. And, and really quick going along with that, there's also this idea of like certain nationalities not having blackness. So like for her, people may have said like, oh, well, in Colombia, it may have been an issue with her blackness. But when she gets to the U.S. and I, I don't know her, but people may not have immediately associated her with Colombian. Right. Like, or you meet Afro-Cubans and you're like, they're black but they have the the national identity that's tied to it as well. So there's these conceptions um, in the U.S. and in other places that you you can't be from a certain place and be black. 
Um, so so I, I'm often curious about um, individuals' experiences who are Afro-Latinx when they get to the U.S. And if they speak English immediately, how do people perceive them? And if they say, well, I'm from a certain place, um, what types of questions do individuals ask them? Yeah, that, that's actually a good that's a good research question. Um, but yeah, I'm pretty sure they are racialized um, before they're like othered, you know, and it's probably different if they have a accent. But yeah, that's a really interesting question. So speaking of interesting questions and, you know, that being an interesting question to pursue, if someone wanted to follow in your footsteps and pursue, you know, a career in research focused on like history, what advice would you give them? And from a personal perspective, I am also interested in wondering, uh, interested in hearing about your experience uh, as a professor at a historically black serving institution. Got it. OK, so, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll just answer your questions in order. Great. So uh, the first, if they were to follow my footsteps or to, to want to pursue a career in history, um, the first thing I, w- I would tell them is to think about, to constantly think about the connections of history to today. So not just looking at history as history, something that happened then, but what are the connections that uh, it has to today? More specifically, if they have a, a research topic, something that fascinates them or something that they have a passion for, I would say pursue it. And figure out um, what what libraries and what archives are available. And some of that is just, you know, using the Internet. But the other thing that I would mention is is to find historians who do research in that area. I think most scholars are excited when someone is um, interested in something that's tangentially related to their topic. Like, oh, it's closely related. Yep, we could sit down and talk about it. So I think that um, for them, I would I would suggest really finding that research topic and thinking about the the libraries and archives that are open. But also um, I would think I would tell them, tell them to think about the different paths that are available through the use of history, the different career paths. So for me, I'm a professor, but that's not the only path, right? They can be in, in politics, they can be in public service, public relations, or, um, something like communications or policy analysts. There's a lot that they can do with history. So I would just tell them to take some history classes if they can, um, but also make those connections with historians and to talk about their their interests and and the path that they see themselves following. And and there are people out there who have parts of the roadmap that will be able to put that together with them in connection with them. Um, so that's that's the advice that I would give them. Um, and the reason that I say go into the libraries and archives is just to get an, a feel for what those spaces are like, both in terms of the interactions of the patrons, but also the what research entails and, and the time and the focus that it entails. And I think most people can do it. So that, that's the the advice that I would give them. As far as me, I feel extremely fortunate, not even I feel, I know that I'm extremely fortunate to work at, to be a professor at a historically black college. Um, And part of it is I I don't, I've never felt or I don't feel the need to sort of justify and explain the research. So the classes that I teach are 
on the African diaspora. Um, and primarily my classes are on Afro-Latin America. And I don't, I don't have to seek students to take the class. They're interested um, just by the very nature. But what I like about the classes is that it challenges their notions and conceptions of race and ethnicity, like you brought up. Um, and, and we have some very dynamic conversations revolving around um, blackness in the U.S. and its connection and blackness in other spaces. So being in this space, it, it's also um, when I'm in the classroom, I, I was telling a, a friend of mine, it feels like I'm speaking with younger family members. Like the, it's uh, the engaged conversations that I have with them um, are very inspiring to myself. It makes me want to continue to, to do as much research so I can bring them more information um, regarding the, the specific ideas that, that fascinate them. So being at being in this space is is it's a privilege. Being at a historically black college is is, is certainly a privilege, um, and yeah, I, I I get to go to other classes and and discuss my research, and the students are are always engaged because for some of them it and it's not for all of them, but for some of them it's something new. To, as we talk about blackness and the black experience on our campus. For me to go into a classroom and then say, okay, now let's talk about Brazil and show them the statistics in terms of the population. It's fascinating for them because they're looking at, um, we were constantly talking about our context, but giving them this broader perspective is critical. And um, one of the things that we did this year, we took several of our students, we took 20 students to Cuba for a study abroad. And it was focused on Afro-Latin American, Afro-Cuban history and politics. And they were so engaged because we spent half of our seminar class talking about Black politics and, you know, historically Black institutions. And then once we went to Brazil, we were engaged with uh, political activists there. So it's, I say all of that <laughs> to say that I, it's a very great privilege. It's a great privilege to be in this space and to have the opportunity to, to work here at Winston-Salem State. <clears throat> no, that's cool, man. I, I think there's real value to that. Um, you being the, the the vessel to expose many of these young Black Americans to kind of the the global plight of Black folks um, and understandings of it. And I think that can hold real value because depending on even where they may go in their futures, I think if we began to essentially globalize our understanding of the black experience. Um, I think we can, it can be used to help us overcome a lot of the challenges in other countries in our countries. Uh, Cause we see globalization being used for the purposes of the privilege in a lot of different ways. And I think there can be ways we can connect with each other around the world um, to help and provide resources and assistance or whatever it is to, you know, create our own kind of autonomy as far as overcoming these issues and resist, uh, resist, uh, oppression and, 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 and learning from the history of these connections too. So, so I know that's real fun and I'm sure the students are gaining a lot from you and your, and your wonderful teacher, man. <clears throat> Any, anything we, you know, you might want to say in closing or that you wanted to talk about that we didn't address in our questions at all. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that I've been thinking about is, um, and, you both mentioned it. Um, 
you mentioned it in terms of students that you meet, and then Daphne, you mentioned it with uh, your friend, the uh, Afro-Colombian. Is one thing that I'm I'm very fascinated about is uh, the presence of Afro-Latinx people in the U.S. Um, I'm fascinated with the current day presence, but I've been what I want to do is more research on um, historic that that historic migration and, and what's happened or what happened to specific cases of individuals who may have moved from, say, a Colombia or the DR or uh, Brazil. I would one thing that I really want to do is have more conversations about the migration um, of Af- Afro Latinx people to the U.S. and like things like where do they end up living. And why do they choose those places or um, what types of occupations are available to them and, and what communities do they go to? So that's just something that's that's been on my mind is thinking about going back to your, your point about globalization, thinking about the, the migration of individuals from these spaces. And um, I, I, I'm looking into that history of what's happened once they've gotten to the U.S., um, and are those connections, do they maintain the connections with where they're from? I'm pretty sure that they did and positive that they, I know that they continue to, but just thinking about how did they maintain connections when they didn't have the access to technology that we have today? Um, and how do they with the technology that we have today? But overall, I mean, your questions have, have made me think I've been taking notes as we're talking. So your questions have, uh, open my eyes to some to some discussions that I want to have with more people in terms of, of the race, ethnicity, nationality, um, as well as just the the overall understanding of Afro-Latinx populations in the U.S. and in their specific nations. But that's that's what I got. That's all I have. Dope. Yeah. Dope. Um, where can can people find you on your social media, at all, social media at all, websites, stuff like that? Yep, definitely, definitely. So they can find me at on Twitter. It's Bo Gators, all one word, B-E-A-U-G-A-I-T-O-R-S. And then Instagram, I have a specific page that's focused on um, the history and presence of African descendants in Latin America. And it is Blacks in the Americas, but it's underscores between each word. So Blacks underscore in underscore the underscore Americas. And yeah, that's, and then they can just seek me out. Um, if they want to com- converse, they can email me at, uh, Gators BD at WSSU.edu. Nice. We'll be sure to um, include that information when we post this episode, uh, uh on our website for sure. So that you can be reached and, and they can follow you and all the work that you're doing. <clears throat> um other than that i want to i want to put your um i also seen that you um speak a couple languages am i correct yeah yep yes all right man so we need i'm gonna need your help real quick all right because i've been trying to get my listeners to to rate and review our podcast so i'm gonna need you to translate that into spanish and portuguese for me so can you just please say in spanish and in portuguese to please rate and review our podcast when they can Okay. Entonces, primero en español, si, si ustedes tienen la posibilidad de revisar este podcast, por favor, hazlo um, con un número 
y decirles qué que opinas de lo que, que están haciendo y también de lo que quieres. And in Portuguese. <laughs> See, that, but that was really impressive, I have to say. You still want to do Portuguese, but you ain't got to let him quit. I'm just fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, we good. <laughs> Let's see. Boa tarde. Se vocês podem pode fazer um PV do podcast aqui lá, that's it. Thank you. Thank you. Gracias. Yes, Gracias. that was so awesome. I'm gonna be like you when I grow up. Oh my god. Appreciate that. So now our listeners have no excuse, you know, just English. in case they just in case they say they didn't understand English, at least right. we got Portuguese and Spanish covered. So now we should see some more rated reviews. <laughs> But we appreciate taking out the time, Dr. Gators, to come chat with us about your research and all the work that you do, man. No problem. Thank you. I appreciate you all having me and asking me these engaging questions. I'm really getting this information out, not just from this podcast, but everything else that you all have been sharing. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right, Dad. So that was a cool interview with Dr. Gators. Yeah, it was. He got me about to get ready and go on my uh, Duolingo app uh, <laughs> so that I can get my uh, Spanish up. <laughs> you know, I got Rosetta Stone and I, I was using it for a while. Then I stopped and I got to get back on it for sure. Yeah, I really do want to be fluent in Spanish. So I'm not even just saying it. I'm a, I'm a, me too. I'm going to go back to Duolingo every day, every day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, they say like 30, 30 minutes a day or something. You should, you should yeah. give it a shot. Yeah, yeah. But but other than that, like on a serious note, well, that was serious because I really am going to do it. But mm -hmm. on another note, I thought the, the interview was really good. Um, and like thinking about, you know, when he talked about like the importance of this particular topic, you know, it really resonated with me. We have to like think about blackness beyond just the U.S. context if we want to truly build movements around like solidarity. And, you know, we often talk about like stereotypes and, you know, not want to be seen as like this monolith. And we can only do that when we make the diverse black voices um, heard. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah, it's just really just expanding our knowledge base um, and realizing that what goes on in America with race isn't just uh, an American issue. Uh, you know, everybody, a lot of, in all the other countries around the world, um, Black people are spread out from the African diaspora and are experiencing some form of oppression due to the color of their skin. Uh, and I think in this day and age, we really don't have an excuse to not know about it, you know. Uh, with technology and the internet and hearing these other stories and narratives and experiences are, are much more readily available to, to us today than it was years ago. Um, just click a button, mm -hmm. you Google search, or you watch a, a video or documentary, whatever. Uh, we quickly learn that what we're going through here is not, is not just unique to the United States for sure. So, so it's good that he's, and I like how he's using, he's drawing the historical connections to present day Uh, try to explain some present day occurrences with what we see with, um, you know, just black folk and Afro Latinos and stuff like that. So that's pretty cool. And I also think it's cool that he did his research too, for two lived in Mexico for two, two and a half years. Um, that's a lot of time being in another country and collecting that data and doing our archival research. Uh, so that's, you know, he's probably got a wealth of wealth of data just sitting at in his, in, in his computer or something somewhere ready to be, 
uh, written and I'm sure he's writing it up now and getting it ready for dissemination. I agree. And like you um, mentioning your point about like connecting the history to the present, I've become like literally obsessed with that because people think that things just happen in a in a vacuum. Like, oh, my goodness, how how did this come about? And a lot of times there is something that happened historically that kind of it was like a domino effect. And I think I want people to just realize the importance of understanding how history is still shaping what happens today. Like there's this quote um, to those who do not learn history, you know, they're doomed to repeat it. And I also say like those who do not learn their history can't truly have a understanding of self and where you are, why you are where you are in life. So, you know, I I kind of agree with your sentiment about like highlighting what he said about connecting history to the present. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what I realized from his um, interview, too, is that how much categories play a role like policy how when he was following, especially in Mexico and the Veracruz, following uh, the racial categories and then they just stopped kind of doing them and just put like Mexican. Um, and I think that's important because, you know, in America, I think while we have so much conversation and issues with race, one of the reasons is just that everything was explicitly categorized white, black, you know, white, black. And I was always a part of the rhetoric, policies, conversations. And then it kind of begs the what happens when you take away those categories and you just say something like just Mexican or we just said just American. Now we know why we need to do it, right? For understanding where resources are going, how people are treated, differences and a lot of stuff. Um, but this may be part of the reason why when, and even in my experience, when I had conversations with just students or others and they're like, you know, I'm not black, I'm, I'm Dominican or I'm not black, you know, I'm Mexican, whatever it is, um, it's maybe because within their home countries, that kind of rhetoric and the policies of how we have categories don't play a role. And so it's, they're not familiar with it. Um, in America, we say you're black because you look black and you're probably going to be treated as a black person. So whether you feel you're Dominican or not, but if your skin is the same t- skin tone as mine and you're driving down the street, well, the, the, the odds of you getting pulled over are going to increase because of what you look like. Doesn't matter how you feel. So I think it's just like that interesting, like he, he, he even said, having these conversations uh, between these groups to have a better understanding in context. Right. Um, because I think that's just important. And I, and I think it's also important for people when they when they do come to the United States too to get an understanding of what we mean when we feel or presume that you are black. It's not really to take away your identity from your your nationality and stuff like that. It's just trying to provide an indication that, you know, if, if you view as black, there's probably going to be certain behaviors that follow or certain prejudgments or certain ways you're going to be treated. And, and, and that's why we, you know, say that or feel, feel that way or view you that way. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah. So thinking about what you just said, I think what you just explained to our listeners about how like these policies and these, you know, categories, the way they were structured, structured the way we think about race in America versus how they think about like race in Mexico or or race in Colombia. And that is exactly what we mean by the phrase race is socially constructed. Mm -hmm. You get what I'm saying? You know, the fact that there was mulatto categories 100 years 
ago. And, you know, the, the census has brought back like a mixed race, you know, category. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like these are ways in which policies are shaping the way we think about mm-hmm. race. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's important, but I also want to, it is funny because in college, that was the first time that I, you know, I'm, I was from, I'm from the South. I lived in a city where everybody, all the black people were pretty much descendants of mm-hmm. slaves, you know, African-American in terms of ethnicity. So I didn't really know, you know, I had never been introduced to black people that were not of my mm-hmm. ethnic background. And I remember being in college and there was this guy um, and, you know, we, you know, had lunch together and I was like, um, I was like, oh, I made just, it was like a throwaway comment about like, you know, something about being black. He was like, I'm not black. I'm like Dominican or whatever. I was like, Oh, <laughs> I didn't say that to him, but I was like, but you look just like me. Like, <laughs> but I just let it go. And that was the first time that I had like encountered something like that. So, you know, there are people, you know, like I was explaining, like my friend, her niece, like when she moved to the U.S., she did not speak English. And there was a black girl in her classroom that was like, uh, I think she told her that she wasn't black. She's like, what do you mean? I'm not black. I'm black. You know what I'm saying? Like she was really mm-hmm. upset that someone would, you know, she's like a middle school, like that somebody would imply that she wasn't black. And then there are some people they are like, I am this national identity or I'm this ethnic identity. So I, it, it does differ, but like, it's great that we're having mm-hmm, this conversation. For sure. For sure. Cause we need them. We need them brought into conversations and make sure we incorporate more people into the conversations and these experiences for sure. And I think a lot, yeah, a lot of the times, even when I'm like watching, uh, you know, growing up, dad and I still, you know, watch baseball and watch the Mets. And, and then I used to be real confused when I was younger because I would see somebody black like me. And then when a reporter would interview them, you know, they got this very thick Spanish accent. I'm like, what's going on here? You know, I thought he was black. Why does he have this accent? Uh, and I wasn't really familiar. Like you said, like with, you know, the differences and, and seeing, understanding that, hey, there's other black people around the world that have, you know, darker skin too, um, and not just in America. So, so yeah, so yeah, it was good. Good for sure. So appreciate yeah. Dr. Gate is coming out <clears throat> to come talk to us about his research and appreciate all of you listening to us and our podcast. And as always, continue to follow us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at BHD Podcast. Um, you can email us at uh, bhdpodcast at gmail.com. Visit our website for all our latest episodes and up-to-date blog posts at blackandhighlydangerous.com. Uh, share us with your friends, share us with your family, share us with your enemies. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear. If you're interested in continuing this and other conversations, visit our website, blackandhollydangerous.com to subscribe to our email list, suggest topics, and participate in our discussion forums. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BHD Podcast. And please don't forget to subscribe and rate our podcast on your favorite platform. And as always, continue to be the oppressor's worst fear.